Hello there and welcome to Thatch and Earth, your guide to conservation-focused travel. I'm Lawrence. And I am Phoebe. And today we're chatting to a very special friend of ours. Yes, we are. We're chatting to Ollie. Ollie first came into our world in about 2017. He was a strange dude from Finland that we were surfing with in Cape Town. Turns out he is an incredibly intelligent human who is currently doing his PhD re- research in a reserve in KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa. He's doing his research between a few different universities, including SLU, Utrecht University in the Netherlands and Nelson Mandela University in South Africa. His research is incredible, as you will hear very soon, and it really sort of blew our minds quite what he's managing to prove. Definitely, and I think it's also worth noting that um, because Oli is up from the northern side of Europe, his uh, grasp on the English language means it comes from a second language perspective, and the reason why I'm mentioning it in per se is his English is probably better than mine. And mine, definitely. So it's it's really, really remarkable to hear this man speak. His um his understanding of the bushveld is rapidly growing. It's actually beautiful to watch. And yeah, I won't bore you with anything more. So without further ado. Okay, so today we are chatting to Ollie. He is a close friend of both of ours. Um I first met Ollie on my master's program at uh, at the University of Cape Town. Ollie wandered in, this random dude from Finland, and has just blown our minds with his incredible biodiversity knowledge, his conservation work. He is now doing a PhD based on, well, I'll let him explain everything about that. Um, so, Ollie, I still can't pronounce your surname after knowing you for years. Um, <laughs> do you want to give us a little introduction about yourself, who you are, what you're doing, what's going on in your world? Yeah, definitely. First of all, thank you for inviting me. I'm really happy to be here and chatting with you about my work and everything. So maybe, yeah, I can just start about talking about my background and then maybe move into talking about like what I'm doing now. So yeah, definitely. I'm Finnish, like you said. So I grew up in northern Finland in a small place called Kajani. And I grew up hunting and fishing with my dad. So that's kind of like the link to the natural world for me as a kid. And I always wanted to go abroad and study. So I wanted to kind of leave, leave Finland. And I went to the Netherlands after my high school to study sustainability sciences. And that wasn't really my thing, I realized. So I realized that I want to study conservation or ecology. So I applied to a bunch of different conservation programs and I got into this program in Cape Town and there I decided to go and uh, I met you guys there and yeah it was a amazing experience for me and I did uh, my master thesis with Tim Hoffman of Cape Town University and we did it about uh, wildlife impact on vegetation so that's how I became to study like vegetation dynamics and wildlife impact on vegetation. Awesome. Amazing. So from your master's thesis, which was very cool, um, what are you doing now in your PhD? Yeah, so this PhD, I'm doing it for the Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences and I'm doing it on mega herbivore effects on earth system functioning. And there's two terms probably that need to be explained. Mega herbivore, what is that? And what is earth system functioning? So mega herbivores are 
animals, the largest of the terrestrial animals that we have. So animals that have larger body size than 1,000 kilograms. So this includes all the three elephant species, five rhino species, the hippo, and giraffe. Although giraffe and Sumatran rhinos only fit the definition marginally, but I do consider them as mega mega herbivores. And yeah, so in my PhD, I'm looking at how these animals influence different aspects of the Earth system, including uh, soil processes and vegetation dynamics, as well as fire dynamics. And I'm kind of zooming into white rhinos as my model species. So the focus is on white rhinos. And at the moment, I'm looking at how white rhinos impact soil carbon dynamics. And that's what I just spent seven and a half months doing in South Africa, uh, digging holes, taking samples uh, to see how rhinos influence soil carbon. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. It's really interesting that you also touch on that because um, uh, we had Steve on our podcast, uh, I think it was end of last week, the week before, and we were busy chatting about his background. And um, just to fill you in a little bit more on this, Ollie, Steve um, spent a lot of time studying soil types as part of his formal studying, particularly in university. And we were kind of touching on how soil types influence you know, the movement of the animals, as well as seeing some of the more special ones, like the big five per se, which, you know, touches on the same thing as you. And you're studying specifically, you know, mega herbivores, like you say, and rhinos is your focal point. Yet, I mean, I was there and I had a look at your work firsthand, and it was basically soil work. And it's very interesting to note that you can look at the movements of these big animals just by looking at the very, very core fundamentals, which is the soils and their food types. And the one thing I was quite interested to see was how you were able to predict certain areas and how these animals were able to certain have specific home ranges around that soil type. And I think one of the questions that Phoebe and I were quite curious to know about was if there was any interesting insights that you noted and how were you able to actually select certain areas based on soil types and grasses? Well, yeah, that's a really good question. I don't know if I'm able to uh, answer that uh, very well, but based on my knowledge that I've acquired while being in the park, in the Shushlua in Pelosi Park, in the KwaZulu-Natal province in South Africa. Um, so it's very heterogeneous park, and it's very heterogeneous in terms of the underlying geology that gives rise to different types of soils. And so the whole park has a lot of sandy soils, but also a lot of clay soils. So, and these, uh, then also different types of vegetation persists on the different uh, soil textures. So it's a very, very versatile uh, kind of an environment based on soil and geology as well as vegetation. And then uh, how rhinos also navigate in that landscape is that part of the, part of the year, in the summertime, they would spend in these bottom land, big grazing lawn areas. And we'll probably go into, into what grazing lawns are soon. But just get back to your question. Then they would, when those areas dry out towards the transition from wet to dry season, the rhinos start migrating away from those 
uh, grazing lawns that are getting increasingly brown and they find fresh forage in the transitional areas, which are usually these Tambozi woodlands, which are shaded and they're characterized by different types of grasses who are more shade tolerant and they then persist uh, further to the dry season, but they eventually also brown out, they dry out. After which the rhinos then move to these, you also, Lawrence, saw the um, mountain slopes on the northern part of Shushlue, uh, which are characterized by different types of grasses yet, usually red grass, the Thimida grasses, which then provide rhinos then in the, in the dry season. So this um, annual pattern of rhino movement is basically dictated or governed by finding fresh forage and that also determines their movement from the bottomlands to the Tabuoti woodlands and to the mountain slopes. Interesting. So you're saying like they kind of move around depending on what kind of grass types is more palatable for them throughout the year. So the grasses that tend to stay greener for longer will be the ones that they focus on at the end of the the end of the the wet let's say the dry season when it starts changing over and they're starting to run low on food that's the areas that they'll focus on but then when it's really nice and wet and it's the fresh grass that's come through they go to a specific kind so they kind of shift themselves around depending on where the grasses go yeah that's correct and uh, this has only been studied though in Shushlua uh, in Pelosi and some part in Kruger National Park so our knowledge is very very limited to these two areas of how rhinos how rhino ecology works super interesting so it, I, I was reading some of the papers on this just trying to get a little bit of background knowledge to at least have some sort of baseline before I, before we started chatting um so i read a paper where they had like enclosed sites where they were like rhinos can't get in here and then we're going to study that vegetation that's sort of fenced because the rhinos are moving throughout the park does that kind of give you particular areas and you study those when the rhinos have gone to see how they differ from having rhinos and from not having rhinos? Is that kind of how your study site and transects and areas work? Yeah, that's actually like how we would ideally study rhino impacts. But like uh, I will shortly explain my study design is a little bit different, but ideally indeed, like you read, you would have these exclosures uh, these fenced areas in which rhinos cannot access, and then you would compare the vegetation in those areas uh, and also those adjacent to these exclosures. And then you can really see the rhino impact because you're now comparing areas where rhinos have access to to areas where rhinos don't have access to. But it is also very costly to establish and maintain these kind of exclosures, and it takes usually many, many years for us to see the difference. So again, I needed to, it's not, it wasn't feasible for my PhD because it's only four years. So I needed to come up with, an, uh, with a way to distinguish or have similar kind of a setup without having these exclosures. So I tried to look at these contrasts in rhino utilization uh, that are naturally occurring in this area. So I could compare, for example, areas that are clearly visited by rhinos uh, and utilized by rhinos and compare them to the adjacent areas where rhinos haven't been frequenting so often. And of course, sometimes it's very difficult to tell apart like what is frequented by rhinos and what is not. 
but a very in the Shushlua in Pelosi Park, we can see these clear areas, grazing lawns that I mentioned the term earlier, but maybe now it's a good time to define it. So in a southern landscape like Shushlua, we would have tall grassland uh, together with some woody plants here and there. And then rhinos are ecosystem engineers that can transform this tall grassland into grazing lawns, which are areas like our lawns in front of our gardens. So they are short, they are special kind of grass species that grow laterally and they're stoloniferous grasses and they are very nutritious usually, attracting a lot of different mesoherbivores like impalas and wildebeest and warthog for example in that area because it's so nutritious and these animals in turn bring more nutrients into the grazing lawn area. So this is like a positive feedback in a way. Rhinos first transform the tall grassland into short stolen first grasses, attracting more wildlife into it, which bring more nutrients. So the grass becomes also more, more nutritious, attracting more animals. Like <laughs> my mind's just slightly blown. And like, I mean, just to get this straight, what you what you're saying is is that this one rhino, like you say, is that ecosystem engineer can come in and affect the landscape in such a way that it can positively influence basically all the well, a good majority of the herbivore species that we know and we've come to love. So, in terms of having a a, a safari experience, so to speak, rhinos are more than just the photo the photo opportunity that you have. That they're actually providing a lot more. So when you get to see that in part of that wildebeest. Maybe the the interaction with the other animals that are in that particular area that has to do a lot with the animals that are helping engineer that space, which is quite an interesting interesting turn of events. I did not mm. expect that to to be an outcome that was uh, possible. Yeah. That's really interesting. I remember learning this when we did our guide training, and when we did our guide training, I was like a baby guide. I didn't grass wasn't even on my horizon of things to learn about, but I remember something being like each herbivore takes a specific part of the plant so they're not competing for like one will take zero to ten centimeters of growth the next one will take 10 to 20 another one will take like maybe not quite exactly that but and i found that really fascinating and i think reading about the rhinos and seeing what you're doing with the research is really cool because that's kind of it in that everyone is linked and you take one of those species or a major one like the rhino and everything else falls apart. Is that right? So if you took the rhinos out of those systems, all the other meso herbivores wouldn't have food or wouldn't be able to access that food. Is that correct? Yeah, to some extent, in a way, because like, especially in, in wetter parts, in like more messy, more wet areas of Shushlua in Velosi, uh, the grass is growing so fast that you really need a big actor like rhino, like a mega herbivore, mega grazer like rhino to take off all that biomass in order for the lawns to stay short and um, if you would remove rhino from that system impalas would probably come into the areas for a bit but they don't have enough pressure they don't exert enough pressure on that area to maintain those lawns but then on the drier areas it might be that smaller herbivores like Impalas, your wildebeest might be able to uh, maintain those lawns 
but it's still kind of unclear if the smaller herbivores can initiate, if they can create those clones the same way as rhinos. And there's still not much research done on this. There's only like a few handful of papers uh, that have been looking into this. But yeah, with the current evidence, it seems that if you remove rhino from the system, especially in the wetter areas, that's the end of the grazing lawn And that obviously will have uh, run-on effects on, on your impalas that are not finding that uh, nutritious forage anymore from there. Well, well, here's the thing. So I, I, I'm sure that this is also circumstantial kinds of findings because, you know, as, as the bush works, in one area things work differently to the other. And yes, there are norms that tend to carry through, and I'm, this could very possibly be that. But the one thing that I'm quite curious to know is, is like, I look at the relationship between zebra and wildebeest, and there's a common, a common belief that they they share the same area, yet they don't compete for the exact same level of grass. Like Phoebe was saying, there's that certain percentage that a zebra will eat compared to a wildebeest. And what's to say that the wildebeest and the, uh, the wildebeest and the zebra that come through are not going to be able to, or will be able to maintain that if their population was bigger. So say we lose that one rhino, yes, but now if we have an extra 20 wildebeest and an extra 20 zebra, are they doing the same thing? That's really interesting because that's the hot, hot debate that we're having, that is 100 impalas, does it equal to one rhino? And yeah, that needs to be researched much more. But for example, in Eastern Africa, uh, in the big plains, in the big open savannas, we see that large herds of wildebeest can also create and maintain these similar kind of structures, grazing lawns, that, for example, white rhinos can in Shushlua in Pelosi. Uh, so there are enough numbers, like if there's, um, yeah, just enough biomass of uh, wildebeest, they can sh- certainly, certainly create those. And then I think t- to paint it to the rest of the people who are listening, and if they might not know the areas that we're talking about, if you if you go look at like the Masamara, it's, it's quite, quite flat, very little vegetation besides the grass. It's mainly what you would classify as a classic grassland yeah it's like those open savanna yeah, plains precisely. that everyone pitches like the yeah. things that you see when you go and watch the lion king for yeah. the first time whereas Huklui, as ollie describes is quite mountainous um lots of valleys and because of that the vegetation is quite dense there's quite there's also quite a lot of um human influence in that area and usually what happens is when areas that get disturbed a lot by human influence they tend to have these really hardy nasty plants um uh, to the people in the know there's one in particular that a lot of guides and a lot of people who've spent time in the bush really grow to dislike and that's sickle bush and that's a classic key indicator that uh, the land has been disturbed by an outside presence usually human influence and that that comes from farming and that sort of thing and when the the area is going through that process of re- rewilding, so to speak, in terms of the plant life, you get this really woody, tough vegetation that kind of forces everything around it to just give that area some time to recover. And I think in the Hluey example, rhino's importance gets a lot higher, not just because of the fact that it wouldn't be able to sustain that large amount of biomass on a very hilly t- terrain, but I think the other one is, is a rhino can actually push through sicklebush, whereas wildebeest and zebra can't. Or well, if they do, it, 
it's going to be very small. They're not going to be able to get you the very dense stuff. And a rhino, like you said earlier, can help with removal of that woody vegetation. That could also possibly be that system engineer that becomes almost vital for that area then. Yeah, definitely. I would say so. I haven't come across with studies specifically looking at how rhinos influence the woody component. For example, sicklebush, which is a bad encroacher also in the Shishui area. But definitely. And that's also like a very interesting part is that part of the definition of a mega herbivore is that because of their large body size, they become immune or their population dynamics become immune or almost immune to predatory effects, meaning your lions and hyenas cannot really influence their population dynamics or affect uh, them their behavior. Like, for example, the, just the presence of lion will influence the behavior of impala because it creates this landscape of fear in the savanna. But these mega herbivores are immune to this landscape of fear, meaning that they are able to navigate through these fear-driven gradients. So the rhino is able to navigate into these very risky areas uh, that are perceived as risky by impala, for example, very dense vegetation. Impalas can also prefer to stay in a like, very open area so they can have a look and they can see if predators are approaching. So that means that their impact on the vegetation is concentrated also in these less risky areas. But rhinos can also exert pressure and utilize vegetation in areas that are perceived as risky for the smaller herbivores. I would, never have, I would never have thought I would have, that. No, no, that never... As you were saying, I was like, so, that's amazing. Because I guess for rhinos, really, humans are their biggest predator like their biggest threat right now like that's a huge thing that we've been looking at on thatch and earth is you know what is rhino poaching like what is the current status of rhino poaching should we legalize the trade should we not and now like what is the future we have to as your incredibly valuable research is, is doing like we have to envisage what will happen if rhinos go extinct like it's very much a possibility that that could happen within our lifetimes and I know like the date keeps getting pushed back of when we could lose particular rhino species, but like it's it's definitely a possibility. And it seems that it's something that not many people consider, just probably because we don't want to. We don't want to consider that one day we might lose rhinos. But it's it's definitely an important thing to consider. And that's just they, they just seem to have an impact at every level of ecosystem, food chain, trophic level. They're just sort of so crucial in their environments. I suppose the other thing that's also really interesting to think about in all of this is that we always have been taught that the big five animals are these elusive creatures, the dangerous ones. If you were a hunter, this is the thing to be fearful of. And as a tourist, this is the animals that you want to come and see. But we don't really hear about their importance in terms of their ecosystem function. I mean... I, I suppose lions to a degree and leopards to a degree, we understand. Predator at the top of that triangle, they're doing their job. Elephants, we're starting to understand that there's more behind their behavior. But rhinos is not something that features very often in terms of what they do. And this is where your research your research is amazing. And I mean, 
like you said, had 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 my boots on the ground next to you watching you do this research and how intensely backbreaking, quite literally, it is. And I, the one thing to just jump a little bit out of all of this for a second was like you got to spend time in the bush that not many people do. You got to see sides and aspects of what the bush is that as a visitor, you will very seldom ever be afforded the opportunity to do so. And was there any kind of memory doesn't have to be rhino based, but was there any memory that kind of stuck with you from that experience? Yeah, definitely quite a few actually. And uh, of course, like coming from Finland into a Southern African system, it's so different in all, all the different ways that could possibly be. So because of the area is in, occupied by a lot of different animals, a lot of dangerous animals as well. I was always uh, accompanied by a guard with a gun. And you know that it's ne necessary because then the guard can also uh, navigate through the landscape and he can read the landscape very well, avoiding those potentially harmful situations before they happen. Um, but of, like there are a few different instances when I really got goosebumps, uh, especially when I start thinking about it now later on. One was that we were just we had to go staying in a in the southern part of the area, and we were staying in this camp in a tent, in a safari tent, and we went to bed uh, like very early because we had to wake up in the morning at 4 a.m. just to go do some. Uh, I think we were doing transects, counting vegetation. And we go to bed and there's this river. It's a beautiful area. There's a river just down from the tents. And I started first listening to the sounds of the bush. And I started listening and I heard like somebody stumbling over the river, swimming over the river, something huge. And I just heard him or her just coming closer and closer to the tent to the point when I really heard that it was probably only 50 meters away from me. And it just kept me awake. I couldn't, I was like thinking, is that a buffalo? No. Is that a, is that a rhino? Maybe it's a rhino. Maybe it's an elephant. I couldn't figure out what it was. But anyways, like at some point the noises died down and I fell asleep only to wake up to this massively hear some low roaring sound of a male lion maybe 50 meters away from my tent so i woke up instantly and the roaring it took probably like 10 seconds or something but it felt long 10 seconds in that situation feels long and uh i immediately i was like oh what do i have what weapons do i have so i took my <laughs> leather my knife my leather my knife which is maybe like max seven centimeters by the blade and I took it and I took my lamp. So I was going through in my head, like if the lion comes into my tent, at least I have my blade and my torch with which I can blind it. Uh, <laughs> of course, the lion didn't never come even close to my tent, but those were the things that I, I was thinking about. And then the lion just went away and I was like, oh my God, uh, thank God it's, it's gone. And then a few hours later, I started hearing like tumbling again and start hearing like cracking of things. So. In my head, I pictured that the lion has now got a kill and it's cracking the bones of like some antelope or something. And I really needed to go outside and take a pee. And 
I was like really holding it in because I didn't want to go because I didn't want to surprise the lion at its kill. All these were thoughts that were going, going on in my head. And so I persisted through the morning when we had to wake up and leave for the field. And I asked my guard, like, did you hear that? Did you hear? He's like, yeah, it was an elephant cracking, uh, cracking branches. Oh, so, branches. But that was it's the, amazing. Yeah, that was also it's like so this realizing that how much your mind plays tricks on you. Like you can create a whole scene, you know, a lion uh, at its kill cracking bones when in reality it was actually an elephant cracking branches. It's it's a fairly different uh, different size too. I mean, elephant's quite a big thing, eh? It's it's true. Yeah, though. I exactly. think like you're you're in the dark. Like those like basic human instincts and emotions kick in, and you start like you go back to like as if you were living in a cave. Time. I remember on our guide training, I think it was a bush baby got killed and dragged through the camp, and this oh. thing screamed like like a blood curdling scream and but you're lying in the tent and you're like oh my god what's happening oh my god like something massive must be killed it must be like a leopard dragging it through the camp no sign of anything in the morning like everyone had heard the sound no sign of anything and actually, it really actually is crazy. Won't, i won't forget that because coming from like a more a bush orientated experience like the first thing you could hear was this bush baby calling and it was panic it was a panic call there was definitely something that had triggered that bush baby to get quite alarmed and i actually won't forget this because i think i was next next to the tent with you or something like we were, we were all hanging out together i think we we're studying for one of our tests that were coming up or something like that and you could hear this bush baby and it was climbing away and it was making a hell of a lot of noise and then something got hold of the bush baby more than likely going to put it out there's probably a genet because it was a genet that frequented that in my camp head it was a, a leopard though i'll say like this was a giant leopard that got and, hold of this thing. that's totally understandable but like the, the one thing that where it got really creepy and where it plays a big part in on your mind is when you can hear there's like almost like this when an animal dies there's like a bit of a girdle that comes out at the end like this the last bits of air coming out of the vocal cords or going over the vocal cords as their lungs kind of stop working. And it's a very, very rough sound. If you, if you haven't been privy to it, I, I think count yourself lucky. The people who do know that sound, it's, it's quite ominous. And you could hear this bush baby screaming in the bush and then it just went like, Whoa, and you could hear this curdle and that was it. And there was dead silence throughout the bush. Next morning, the whole camp, we're talking like 20 or 30 people, all sitting around having a cup of coffee at four in the morning. You're like, did you hear it? And they're like, yeah, <laughs> it was hectic. There was something big. And it was like, it messes with your mind a hundred percent. I mean, even I remember as a kid, um, one day I got, uh, the, I, I was quite fearful of the bush at a stage when I was quite young. And that's understandable. You know, like you say, your imagination runs wild. And as a kid, your imagination is almost limitless. And I'm, I'm sitting in this little room. It's a, it's a very round little tent. And, I'm I'm trying to, uh, uh, like, I'm desperate for the loo. I want to get out, and there's a little metal bin in the corner. And I don't want to put my feet on the ground because I'm worried I'm going to step on a scorpion. And I don't know why. It was a very irrational fear. And then some, there was a beetle in the bin, and I started running around the bin, and I kept making noise in the bin. And I got so scared. I was like, there's something outside. I cannot get out of the tent. And I held my pee in from, like, 12 o'clock to, like, 6 in the morning, because I was so terrified and I, I leant over this bin and there was a tiny little bug in there. And I was like, I, 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 that's what I was scared of for the entire night. 
So, yeah, your imagination definitely plays a big role in how you interpret the bush. A huge but, role, yeah. But I'm really happy to hear that you came away with a, with a really cool experience, one that you clearly remember quite vividly, and that's the beauty of it. Definitely. I mean, I, on top of that, uh, getting to spend time with you a little bit more in the bush, it's been really interesting to see how, how you've grown and how your perspectives have changed in the bush. And I... I think one of the things I'm still quite curious about is actually how you went about testing because I never actually really asked you about that. You know, um, for those who uh, d don't know 100% when, when Ollie was there, I, I offered to help him out and do a bit of volunteering. And um, Ollie had me doing some soil sampling, which to to a naive mind doesn't sound so bad, but to somebody who understands, it's really, it's really difficult to basically have this coring type device that Ollie can obviously explain a bit more. And um, you, you take out a, f a fair amount of the soil and then you've got to section that piece off. But because it's quite scientific, you have to have different levels with different devices to take certain amounts and you have to make sure that you take an average amount so you're digging multiple holes at each site. And Ollie and I happened to choose a place that was basically like concrete. And it took us, it took us, it took us a very long time to take out those core samples. But one of the questions that Phoebe asked me earlier was, how exactly did we go about selecting these sites? And I actually didn't have much of an answer for that because, silly me, I didn't actually ask. So I have an opportunity to ask now. So, how exactly did you go about selecting the areas to test, and why did you choose those specific areas? Yeah, that is a good question. Um, so. I wanted to first of all get like a good representation. I looked at all those different habitats that rhinos potentially occur in Tushluwe, and and when I found enough of those plots in the habitats, I wanted to sample in a relatively level place. So I didn't want to sample on a slope unless absolutely necessary, uh, just because. There might be different effects that the slope has on the soil carbon. So, for example, um, on a level piece of land, I can I can uh, lay out my 2.5 by 2.5 meter plot easily, and I can take my different different samples at the different types of grazing treatments. So, I had plot in a very intensely utilized area and then adjacent to that I would have a treatment of less intensely utilized as well as least intensely utilized but yeah this becomes very technical quickly <laughs> I realized <laughs> uh, but the idea was to um, avoid any disturbances in the landscape so I didn't want to sample on termite mounds for example and sometimes the ter these termite mounds can be very inconspicuous so you really have to read the soil and see if there's uh there are any termite activity and i had a field guide with me who knows the area like his own pockets and he was basically helping me do this uh site selection uh so yeah we tried to avoid all the different disturbances and look for areas that have the biggest contrast of rhino utilization so i would First of all, look signs if there are these long grass species. So the long grass species are very different types of species compared to the tall grass species. So I know that like if in the area there are these long species, 
that is very likely to be utilized by rhinos. Because from our earlier conversation, rhinos are the main drivers of creating and maintaining these grazing lawns. Um, but yeah, I have no idea if that answered your question. No, it's, it's, it's given me another question to ask you. And yeah. I'm just, I'm fascinated by this. So you take your soil samples. What do you, I mean, get as technical as you want. We can, we can, we can take a good bit of science. Um, what are you looking for in the soil? Is it like soil carbon level? Is it like nutrient level? Like what, what are you specifically analyzing the difference of in those soil samples? Uh, exactly carbon. So I'm looking at carbon. I'm taking them to a laboratory and then analyzing them for different types of carbon. And then with that information, I can uh, look how, how rhinos influence the soil carbon sequestration process. Awesome. Is it yeah. like isotopes? Is it carbon isotopes you're looking at? Yeah, that could be part of it, definitely, because we know that uh, grasses, these grasses that are in Shushlua Inflosi use different type of photosynthesis. They use the C4 sort of photosynthesis compared to uh, woody plants that use predominantly the C3 photosynthesis. So the carbon coming from these two different photosynthesis processes have a different car carbon isotope signature. So you could potentially also distinguish the source of carbon if you look at carbon isotopes from the soil. So you could see that, okay, this and this much of carbon actually came from a grass origin and this and this much carbon came from a woody origin that would be really cool so cool man my, my like science brain is like lighting yeah. up right <laughs> now I'm just... <laughs> um i think to to talk a little bit more along the layman's here um why why would that be important and how does that determine whether or not rhinos would have been in the area or that they've impacted that soil how do you draw that line uh, in these grazing lawn areas, you mean? Particularly with your studies and um, monitoring the carbon that you're finding in each sample, how does that exactly dictate whether the rhino has an influence or not? Oh, yeah. So there are different mechanisms to, through which these rhinos can influence the soil carbon. And that's probably like all the, the audience is now also thinking about, like, how is it possible that rhinos can influence this carbon? But... Um, so the first pathway is that because rhinos, rhinos are, the grazing process itself, it acts as a carbon pump into the, is that um, when an animal, any kind of animal, not only rhino, but any kind of animal removes the leaves of the grass, eating them, um, this is when the grass cannot produce sugars anymore. So they, they don't use photosynthesis because they use the leaves to produce uh, use photosynthesis to produce sugars. And when the leaves are removed, the roots that require a lot of carbohydrates are now starved of carbon. So that means that they detach into the ground. And at the same time, if there's sun, nutrients, and water, the leaves start growing back again until another grazer comes and removes the leaves. When the new roots that have simultaneously grown as the leaves grow, they get detached again, and this root material is basically carbon that gets entered into the soil carbon pool. And what happens to the carbon depends on what kind of microbes are in the soil and what, uh, what kind of moisture levels and what kind of soil texture there is, because 
some of the carbon can be used by microbes. And when they use the microbe, that carbon then gets respired back into the atmosphere as carbon dioxide. But then some of the carbon stays and makes these associations with different kind of soil aggregates or minerals. Um, so that is one pathway through which rhino can influence carbon. But then there's also other pathways through which rhinos in, uh, attract, or the raising lawn in itself, because it's very nutrient grasses, this uh, attracts a lot of smaller, mega herbiv uh, smaller herbivores, such as impalas and warthogs. Uh, and they bring in nutrients and then through dunging on the areas. And these nutrients then boost the primary productivity of the grasses, increasing the production rate of the leaves and the roots. So that can kind of, yeah. So let, let me get this straight as, as, as best I can here. What I'm picking up that you're saying is, is that well, when a rhino comes into graze, it ups the carbon level yes so the more grazing happens the better the carbon levels are so that's one indicator to tell you so if you have a high carbon base you know that there's been a lot of influence from a particular kind of grazer obviously if you're in a frequent that area you can kind of draw that line and then because of that carbon deposit it helps plants grow quicker uh, or helps more plants come in um, how exactly does that benefit the area around it? Like, because it's a high carbon level, what does that mean? What does that provide the surrounding ecosystem with? When there is a high pool, like a large pool of carbon in the soil, that obviously provides, uh, it's usually associated with uh, healthy soil, like large amounts of organic matter and large amount of, carbon and it's the same in agricultural soil if you have a lot of organic matter and carbon that boosts the productivity of the plants and with the higher productivity of the plants also all the animals that eat those plants are benefited from that but then there's okay. also there's also a much wider benefit from the carbon sequestration process uh, and that has to do with removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere so and uh, storing it permanently or semi-permanently into the soil uh, so therefore it is kind of like climate change mitigation and which is incredible yeah <laughs> that's I, like as, as you were talking i was like slowly getting there and you just sort of confirmed in my head what i was thinking which is absolutely amazing so technically could you say in very simple terms if you lose rhino and their grazing habits and their effect on on the, the, how they create these lawns, if we lose rhinos, does that mean that the carbon sequestration effect is limited? Is it lowered in those systems? So that is the hypothesis, what I'm studying, exactly. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> so we actually don't know yet. Yeah. Oh. But you put it in very nice terms. So Yay. that is, in a nutshell, what I'm studying now. And do you have, I don't, I don't want to like sort of, you know, spoiler alert on Ollie's PhD, but do you have any indication that of, of a finding either way? Uh, actually, I haven't analyzed my soil samples yet, so I can't give you any results, but I can definitely let you know immediately when I have those results and I publish them. And uh, yeah, that's going to be really, really interesting. 
it's the novel so kind of a study. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's I, so I'd be so curious to know the answer on that. It's it's so interesting and I think it really sort of um points towards the wider issue, you know, like hopefully most of us now know how much trouble rhinos are in and how facing the probable extinction they are and loads of people put in the arguments of you know we've got to protect them simply because we can't afford to lose another species and it's bizarre but sometimes you have to justify to people why we don't want to let species go extinct and i think if we can prove that losing rhinos from systems where there aren't many other species that could take their place could have quite a serious impact on climate change that's surely incredibly valuable information and that that's also the kind of um area where there's a significant amount of funding like government level funding that's going into like climate change mitigation could be in the form of rhino conservation which would be amazing it would really just i mean if you could table that as genuine proof that just kind of changes the whole game and how we perceive our wildlife it could potentially change the whole conservation industry as a whole when you start looking at the the grander scheme and how everything is truly interlinked and that if you can prove it i mean it, it it's kind of guaranteed evidence that you have to keep these animals around particularly in an area like refuri like we were talking about where they can't necessarily afford to lose the rhino because there's nothing that could really step in and i mean it's a harsh reality that we are facing that we are losing our rhinos quicker than we could ever possibly imagine and it would be quite scary to see what would happen to an area like Hakluri because, I mean, there's no other species really that could fill that gap. I mean, elephants elephants do graze from time to time, but not nearly as much as, say, a rhino does because that's its primary source of food. Yeah. So, and yeah, so another mega herbivore that could uh, have a similar kind of an impact is a hippo, but hippo's impact is very limited to nearby water sources so nearby rivers and ponds whereas rhinos white rhinos they their impact also extends beyond the reach of hippos yeah but i mean correct me if i'm wrong here but uh hippos are quite fussy eaters if you want to simplify that down a little bit and they primarily focus on specific grass species in fact one of the ones that their most favorite common name is couch grass you'll probably have the actual um botanical names for them Whereas rhinos, although they care about the palatability to a degree, they don't necessarily care specifically on species. They'll move around and take whatever they can get because at the end of the day, they have to have quite a large income of, uh, or a large volume of food to sustain themselves over a, a single year. So that's why they have to move around to find places that have more palatable grass. And it doesn't really matter what species, whereas a hippo, it's quite specific. So would they wouldn't really be able to provide the same level of support that a rhino does so then then it turns out that they're going to have to start focusing on bush clearing more and bringing in a whole bunch of different grazers to fix the same issue that they could have just fixed if they had maintained the rhino population and that's quite scary they're creating a whole financial problem for themselves let alone ecological problem for themselves because they can't protect the one species that they really need to protect which kind of brings you back to like an ecosystem service level almost, you know, like it's kind of obvious with vultures and stuff like that. But when you bring it to rhinos and the, their grazing capacity and their carbon sequestration capacity and things like that, it, that's an ecosystem service. That's something that for humans to recreate will cost us 
tons of money and a load of innovation that we haven't come up with. We're not clever enough to do. And the rhino just wanders around eating grass and it's just doing it by accident with no intention of sequestering carbon. It just does it. And yeah, it's just it's just another one of those links to show like you can't just look at an individual part of an ecosystem. Everything is linked, including the human in that whole system. And that's why you've got to take a broad perspective on conservation as a whole, really, rather than just focusing on, I don't know, let's protect that one rhino. Yeah, let's protect that rhino because of X, Y and Z. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You said it really well. And um, also just an idea in the northern hemisphere, we are focusing on reforesting now so that the forests can suck up carbon from the atmosphere to mitigate climate change. So can, for example, restoring rhino species throughout their historical habitat, for example, or any other herbivore that can provide similar kind of function, could that also be seen as a similar climate change mitigation method as, for example, reforestation? Mm, definitely. I like that because what that does is it kind of flips the whole idea of why you'd want to conserve these animals and also changes the, the way people view it, that, you know, you're not just supporting the extinction of a species, which is incredibly important, like not taking away from that, but you're also actually contributing to the whole greenhouse emissions issue that we have and the fact that climate change is on our doorstep and we are not doing enough to fix it. And that's another way of linking them all together and actually provides value to the rhino even more so than it has already. I mean, the big five status apparently is not enough to keep these animals alive. So we've got to find other reasons now to say, well, like, these are important creatures and we need them. We can't afford to lose them. The only thing that I'd be curious to know about is when it comes to the carbon sequestration, is that the word? Yeah, yeah. Cool. New words. Um, when it comes to that, how long does that process take? Is that is that a is that a, over a certain lifetime, or is it something that happens that's quite immediate? How how are you able to determine how long it's going to take? Because I mean, if a rhino can provide that, if it's an immediate effect, obviously there's going to be even a greater impact and a greater reason. But if it's going to take a long term effect, then it becomes a little bit more of a difficult thing to sell. Do you know how long that normally takes? So the grasslands themselves are many tens of millions years old and they evolved for tens of millions of years. So many of these pristine old growth grasslands have accumulated carbon for tens and tens of millions of years. And then you have a disturbance like a human disturbance or something. Some of that carbon is lost into the atmosphere and uh, but then on the other hand, you have like a lot of rangelands where cows are roaming. And studies suggest that even on the scale of 10 years or 20 years, if performed correctly, those can al- already have significant impact on the, on the carbon stocks. Uh, but yeah, actually, I can't fully answer the question yet to ask what's extend rhinos or like how fast rhinos and rhino behavior and the grazing could build up those carbon stocks. And that's hopefully also something that we start understanding after this research and probably sprouting some tangent research 
projects also. I can't nice, wait for the answer. A nice little postdoc somewhere. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's yeah, awesome. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Oli, as always, in a couple a couple minutes, you've blown my mind, and it's been like a throughout the entire conversation. Um, really appreciate that. Like it's it's always a great time to chat to you because I always end up learning something new. Yeah. Yeah, every and I, time. I genuinely appreciate that time. One of the questions that Phoebe and I ask every person at the end of every podcast that we record is a simple one. And it seems like you already answered it throughout the entire podcast. But hey, let's throw, throw it out there and see what you have to say. If you could change one thing about the cons- conservation industry as a whole right now for the greater good, what would it be and why? Wow, that is an amazing question. I think I need to take like a week to think about this properly. But do <laughs> 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 like check back next but, week for Ali's answer. Yeah, but um, and it would be some like, mind blowing answer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but just saying it like from here, I think I would want to change the fact that the conservation, especially in southern Africa, is very much dependent on income coming from tourism and like philanthropous how do you say that mm. word yeah yeah, no, yeah. yeah yeah exactly and i would want to see also conservation being able to fund it through different kinds of mechanisms that they are not reliant on only tourism for example now we see with the covid epidemic what is that going to do to the conservation field in south africa i mean there's still a significant amount of tourism coming from south africa itself which can provide that funding, but maybe not the whole funding. So it's very vulnerable, the whole industry, actually, if you think about it. So I have no answer to that, how to do it, but I would love to see that there would be more diversified portfolio in a way to fund conservation so it would be more resilient to... I think that's... Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a fantastic answer. And it's it's so true. And it's something that a few other people have said along the way. And that why does it have to justify itself? Why does conservation have to fight for little scraps of income? Why is it not considered on the same level as infrastructure development or, you know, I don't know, some massive sort of funding that never needs to justify itself, never needs to to scrape for for income. And I think I think you'll bang on. And I think it's so crucial and the more time goes on hopefully the more we're realizing hopefully you know with with evidence that's coming from your research that conservation has so such a a greater effect than just protecting species and it's it's crucial and yeah it, it it should be able to get funding and financial means from elsewhere rather than just sort of sort of proxy proxy funding which yeah, I think it's really important. You're, you're, you're so right, Oli. I mean, if if you wanted to look at it in another in another aspect, if you were an investor and you're investing in money, the first thing that somebody's going to tell you to do is not to put all your eggs in one basket. You need to diversify your portfolio. You need to have income coming from all different structures, and also that if one collapses, the others keep it going. And you're so right. It, the conservation industry as a whole has these very very wide and deep income structures but it's not diverse enough. You know, there's not, there's not enough to say that if that river collapses, the rest of them are going to keep you going. 
and COVID, I think, has really exposed that vulnerability because it's taken our most profitable income source and just kind of cut it off and said, well, deal. And I think a lot of the lodges who are focusing on, you know, overseas tourism and people who have a high income structure, they're the ones who are suffering the most, oddly enough, because the ones who targeted local communities and local um, local individuals have been able to keep the customer base fairly high and the occupancy is much higher rates because it's affordable. These upper end lodges are not affordable for the average person living in Southern, Southern Africa. So it really starts to raise the questions of how are we approaching the conservation industry and how we need to change the way we approach it in order to successfully manage this really incredible privilege that we've had to manage, you know, and research like yours is incredibly important because what that says is it says to governments at their level that without this, you're going to have a massive issue. And it's not just going to be the fact that you're not going to have income from tourism. Yeah. And And it's really important. Yeah. And on that note, maybe big global agreements like the Paris Agreement in which we, as the global, have agreed upon a target to reduce climate change um, collectively and its impact. Maybe um, agreements like this can also act as a source of funding if we start seeing conservation, for example, benefiting the climate change mitigation agenda. So, for example, if we could say the conservation or restoration of rhino population throughout their historical range, if we could quantify how much carbon they store into the soil, that would provide a reason, uh, that would provide as good of a reason as uh, reforesting a forest somewhere in Scotland. Uh, And maybe this could also bring the income stream for conservation that is needed definitely yeah. that that's the, that's the goal isn't it really to to prove conservation's value to get it on an economic level so because people aren't just going to protect it just because it exists unfortunately we need to prove that it has an economic value and therefore every human can understand that and will protect it I feel like this conversation could go for I a lot longer than what, we, what we've done Ollie. now. I mean, it, it's an hour. It's and all, it feels like it's been about three minutes. Yeah. I, I'm I'm kind of speechless, Oli, because like <laughs> I said, I, I just want to keep talking. And I know that you have a lot of things on your plate at the moment and you've got other things to go and get sorted. But um, I think we definitely need to have you back on at a stage where we can maybe discuss your findings a little bit more and just open this up a little bit because you have changed my perspective well my my perspective sorry on conservation after this one conversation and i mean i i've heard a lot of people speak about it from very very different walks of life but a lot of people have spoken about similar topics like this i mean we've focused on thatcher to the point now where we we we're speaking conservation basically every day now but you've really changed the way I'm viewing this and I really appreciate your insights and your time, genuinely, because without people who don't question question why even there is a box in the first place, we can't start thinking outside it. And it really is refreshing to have somebody who does that. And yeah, your science is amazing and I know that I can't always hold my own in science, but I really appreciated your time and your insights and definitely need to have you on to learn more. 
But thank you very much for inviting me. And I have to say also that I really think what you you guys are doing your platform, that channel is amazing and just keep doing what you do. And I'm really, really thank grateful you. of the fact that you invited me to come here. Cool. Thanks, Oli. Absolute pleasure. Amazing. So um if anyone wants to get in touch with you, just like final question, um, if they have more follow-up questions from what you're doing, what is the best way for people to find you and get in touch with you? Uh, probably through my email, or I can also drop in my Twitter account, Instagram account, and Facebook account if that's, yeah, that's possible. Sure. And people can definitely write me on any of those platforms. Awesome. We'll, we'll put it all in the show notes. So if anyone has any further questions, which I'm sure... If anyone listens to this, it'll just spark a whole load of more questions. That's what science does best. Um, and then they can find all your details in there, which is amazing. Mm. Wow. As per usual, chatting to Ollie just blows your mind. I mean, I feel like I could have chatted to him for hours there. Absolutely. I am so fascinated by the research that he's doing. And I cannot wait to see the results. We definitely need to get him back on when he's published all of his PhD, PhD work and got some papers out there. And so just once again, all of his research is through a um, super tight collaboration between SLU, Utrecht University in the Netherlands, Nelson Mandela University in South Africa, and the Department of Wildlife, Fish and Environmental Studies. And if you're looking to get in touch with Oli, pop us a message at info at thatchandearth.com. And don't forget to like and subscribe on our social media pages. It's at, at thatched underscore earth. And if you want to read up a little bit more about the Rhino Conservancy, that's the conservation efforts that are happening at the moment, please take a look at our Rhino series blogs at thatchedandearth.com. Uh, so otherwise, I think that's about it. From me, I'm Lawrence. And I'm Phoebe. Bye. Peace. <laughs>